Um, a special welcome to Deb and Danika and Kiara as well. Kiara's sort of come the other week, but here she is today for a first full service. So welcome, Deb. We uh, really thank God for the blessing that you guys are to us and the precious little gift you've got bundled down there beside you as well. So good to have you back with us today. So this is the um, last talk we're giving in our series, uh, What Does That Mean? We've been over the last 10 or 11 weeks, uh, various passages of the Bible and uh, questions sort of arising from those. And um, so this is the last one today. We're going to start a new series uh, next week. And uh, the series I've been thinking through or the the, uh, understanding I've been thinking through is spiritual warfare, spiritual warfare. Um, you may not know it, but every single person who's a believer in Christ is involved in spiritual warfare. Not hand-to-hand, arm-to-arm combat, but in spiritual warfare. And it's critically important that we understand that. Um, so we're going to take a, a, a number of weeks and look at really just Ephesians chapter 6. So I would encourage you this week even to read through the book of Ephesians. There's only six chapters there. It's not very long. If you read through that and then come back to chapter 6 and read through that probably two or three times at the end, that would be really helpful to try and get you some good understanding about where we're going to go uh, in Ephesians over the next few weeks, particularly in spiritual warfare. So if you could do that this week, and I will shoot out a reminder email for that as well, uh, that will be terrific. And Megan's just reminded me too, if there are any kids need a kids pack, you can uh, wander down the back there and have that uh, for the children. That will be, that will be really Helpful for us if that was going to help you. Okay, today, uh, last talk on um, what does that mean? Uh, I'm not sure if any of you people saw a movie back in 1987 called Wall Street. I don't think I did, but there's a quote that comes out of that movie by the, by the name of a man of the name of Gordon Gecko. I think that's just, just, just his character name. I hope that's not his real name. Gordon Gecko has this to say in the movie. The point is, ladies and gentlemen, that greed, for lack of a better word, is good. Greed is right. Greed works. Greed clarifies, cuts through and captures the essence of the evolutionary spirit. Greed, in all of its forms, greed for life, for money, for love, knowledge, has marked the upward surge of mankind. That was Gordon Gecko's quote from the 1987 film Wall Street. Greed in essence, he was saying greed is good. Greed in essence is a desire that is driven by something that captures our heart. And in Gordon Gecko's thought, it can work its way out in life, in, in, in life, money, love and knowledge. It's generally a selfish desire that drives us supposedly to be a better people in the words of Gordon Gecko. Now, I'm not complimenting Gordon Gecko here by saying greed is good, not at all, but highlighting this fact here about this selfish desire that can rise up in our heart and uh, consume us. Well, Jesus is going to meet somebody here today who has a heart that's been taken over also by an overwhelming desire, possibly greed, but we're going to meet this person today with Jesus as he deals with a really deep-seated heart issue. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go to Luke chapter 18, and we will read from verses 18 through to 30. 
starting at verse 18. And a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honour your father and mother. And he said, all these I've kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven and come, follow me. But when he heard these things, he became very sad for he was extremely rich. Jesus, seeing that he became sad, said, How difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Those who heard it said, Then who can be saved? But he said, What is impossible with man is possible with God. And Peter said, See, we've left our homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many more times in this time and in the age to come eternal life. Uh, Lord, we give you thanks and praise that we can come this morning and uh, we can open up your word. We ask and pray now that, Holy Spirit, you would come and just open our hearts up uh, to see the work of the gospel uh, that Jesus Christ does here on the rich young ruler. Uh, Please today allow our hearts to be exposed, albeit uncomfortable, albeit very difficult, but Lord, help us to see that the gospel works deep inside of us. It doesn't merely deal with the surface or the outside person, but it goes really deep into our hearts. Uh, please, Holy Spirit, pray, help us to see that today and do a good work, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, so the question that we had today um, that come out of this passage is where it seems like Jesus questions his own goodness. You might see there that um, he comes up and says, good teacher, and Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Uh, and we will cover that as we go through that passage um, uh, here today. But we want to look at the whole big picture here that's taken place here with the rich young ruler as he meets uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, wouldn't we all love an, a witnessing opportunity like that? Somebody comes up to you and says, Todd, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You'd die for that sort of question, wouldn't you? you know, what must I do to obtain eternal life after I die? I think we'd probably be a little bit shocked first if somebody came up and asked me that sort of out of the blue. Like somebody's asked me, what have I got to do to get to heaven? Uh, and, and you'd be sort of, uh, where do I start? What do I say first? What's the first thing I've got to sort of get them to? You know, where do you want me to point them to so they can get to this right opportunity to get to heaven? Perhaps some people, uh, they might go straight to John 3.16 and that wouldn't be so bad. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have life eternal. Might be a really good start to go there. Hey, look at what Jesus has done for you at the cross. So Luke's recorded this account of us, uh, of, of uh, Jesus, sorry, and his life on earth. And here it seems like there's a golden opportunity for Jesus to lead somebody into his kingdom or to eternal life. And probably what we find here is a very surprising response by Jesus here with this man as he answers him. There's two real, probably, uh, characters in this uh, passage. Firstly, it is Jesus, 
He's the star of the passage. Uh, And also we do have this rich young ruler. And what I want us to do as we think about that today in this surprising response, I want us to see what's either happening inside uh, either Jesus and the rich young ruler or what's going on around about them at the same time. And as we do that, we'll see here that Jesus really does aim at the heart. He doesn't want to sort of deal with the outside skipping along the surface. He wants to aim at the heart and uh, where God does miracles in salvation. So let's meet the rich young ruler. Uh, He just might be the most eligible bachelor getting around at this particular time back in uh, uh, Israel's day. Maybe he's not a bachelor, who knows. In this same event, which is recorded for us in uh, Matthew 19 and Mark 10, along with uh, Luke here, we see he's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler. This story is recorded for us three times. Uh, He's rich, he's young, and he's a ruler. This guy has fame, fortune, and friends. He's got power, position, and prestige. He's got it all as far as everybody's thinking. And he's not only rich, it tells us he's extremely rich. He's not just wealthy, he's extremely wealthy. We might call him perhaps a millionaire in today's terms. An extremely rich guy. For any person like that, we think that this guy has got it all together. It seems that way when you see the bold and the beautiful in the riches. They seem like they've got everything all organised. They've got no worries. They've got everything that money can possibly buy. He would have friends galore and he had plenty of self-esteem and he would have confidence to burn with all this sort of affluence around about him. This bloke could go anywhere in this particular frame of mind and immediately he would command respect wherever he was. Having said all that, though, we find this rich young ruler drawn somewhat to Jesus here in this passage. And the way Luke sort of writes it here, or the way we read how Luke's written, there's good reason to believe that this guy was listening to Jesus as he taught just prior to where we are in this passage earlier in the chapter. There's there's about two or three scenes that are happening together here in chapter 18, and it's very good reason to believe that this guy was somewhat in the vicinity when this was taking place. Jesus is teaching about the Pharisee and the tax collector early on in this chapter, about um, justifying oneself. And then he would have seen Jesus here in the next passage talking about loving little children and, and allowing them to come to him so that he could bless them. We could see that happening there as well uh, with this rich young ruler as he was seeing Jesus. So perhaps as he sees those things, he was drawn to him. He was drawn to him. There's a good chance that as he observed that, he actually had something different about Jesus that this rich young ruler could see. There's something different about this teacher. He seems to have more authority. He's not like the, all, all the other ordinary teachers that I know uh, from the rabbis and from the Jewish synagogues around about him. And in some sense, he obviously, obviously believes that Jesus can help him with eternal life. Perhaps for this rich young ruler, with everything else that he's got around about him, maybe he thought, I just need one more thing. Maybe just to make sure of it, I need one more thing to make sure of eternal life. So this guy does. He approaches Jesus and asks him that. He says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I think even in that question... There's a hint of thinking, as we begin to look at this rich young ruler, that he's got to do something. What must I do? He's got to do something to deserve eternal life. What must I do to obtain this? What can I do to perhaps somehow earn eternal life? Jesus answers him really strangely. 
We might have said, you know, go to John 3.16 or something like that. But look at what Jesus says here. He says in verse 20, you know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honour your father and mother. Jesus actually goes to the Ten Commandments and he quotes some of these commandments to this rich young ruler. How... um, How does the rich young ruler then respond to this as Jesus says those things? In verse 21, he says this, and he said, this is the rich young ruler, all these I've kept from my youth. I've done all that. I've kept all those. What do you see when you read that about the rich young ruler? Jesus lists out sort of four of the commandments from the second table or the six commandments that deal with our relationship between each other. And the rich young ruler says, yep, I've done all that from my youth. What do you see when you read that and you think about how he's responded to Jesus? When I see that, I reckon I see there a sense of self-confidence or self-righteousness. I'm all good here, Jesus. I've done all that. Yep, I can tick the list. I've done all those things. Now, Now, in one sense... The Jews of Jesus' day had so reworked the law of Moses, including the commandments, that he could say that. That he could say that. They had made sort of differing ways of how to understand the law and what obedience to the law would look like. They'd sort of drastically honed those things down to a very low level of just some sort of token sort of desire to obey was good enough to say, yep, I have obeyed it. So in a sense, I could understand through their the way they were thinking about the Jewish law, how yes, there could be some obedience in their way of thinking, but in another real sense, which I think is far more accurate here, he, the rich young ruler, suffers with what most people suffer with or what most people have, and that is self-righteousness. Jesus, I've done all those things. I've kept them all my life. Jesus, I'm a good person. The rich young ruler has his own righteousness or his own goodness, his own good deeds or good life to offer to God as in the ticket to heaven. He thinks he's got something he's already got to offer God. And there's a real sense how every one of us have that within us. We have a a sense of that within us all, that we are good enough to get to heaven. Look at what these couple of verses in Proverbs tell us. Proverbs 16.2 All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit. All the ways of man, that's including men and women, it's a generic term there, are pure. We all think what we are doing is right in our own eyes. We think we're okay. Uh, Proverbs 21.2 Every way of a man is right, again, in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the heart. There is this sense where we think we are right in what we do. Maybe not totally right or completely right, but a very real sense about who we are. We are right people. We are good people. A few years ago, uh, we were down the streets doing street evangelism in Shepparton, uh, down there nearly every uh, Saturday morning. And uh, if you asked somebody um, whether they believed in God, they'd probably some, most people would say yes. And the next question might say, do you think you'll go to heaven? And surprisingly, most people in Shepparton said, yes, I'll go to heaven. And then the next question was, why do you think you'll go to heaven? Nearly nine times out of ten, people would answer, 
because I'm a good person. Because I'm a good person. It just shows you how it's in there. Nine times out of ten, they would say, I will go to heaven because I'm a good person. That's by, so that's saying by my own goodness, God will let me in. Nothing to do with Jesus and what he's done. I'll get in because I'm a good person. So my salvation becomes about what I have done and how good a person that I am. And this is where the rich young ruler sits, right in that range of, a lot, of where a lot of people sit. We actually think that we're okay. There's, there's a level of self-righteousness within us. We seem to easily justify ourselves, and particularly here, uh, the rich young ruler was doing it before Jesus by his goodness. He's quite proud of his achievements. And this is one of the challenges here with, with self-righteousness. It is a big deceiver in us. It does deceive us. We tend to measure up our lives against other people's lives and then we start to say, well, I'm not as bad as that person over there. I'm not as sort of, you know, as filthy living as that person over there. I don't trash my life like the way that person trashes their life over there. We seem to compare ourselves with others and in that process we keep inflating ourselves up in our own goodness and we think somehow that is how God will accept me because I'm a good person. Well, this is the rich young ruler up to this point. We are going to see much more of him as we go through this passage. But now let's change gears and let's look at Jesus here as he deals with this rich young ruler. Maybe right here with Jesus, the rich ruler is feeling like at this particular time, he's just answered, yes, I've done all those things, Jesus. Maybe he feels right now the whole deal is going his way. Jesus has asked me three or four questions. I heard, yes, 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 I've done all that. And he's always used to the deals going his way, this rich young ruler. Everything goes his way. And again, it looks like for him that all the ducks are going to line up in a row for him because he said, yes, 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 so far to Jesus. But Jesus has got something different to say here to this rich young ruler. As it were, what he's about to say is like launching a missile at the rich young ruler. He's about to blow him up. He's about to absolutely shatter his foundations. Let's look at what Jesus says here as he shatters the foundations of self-confidence or self-righteousness here in verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack. There's only one thing. There's only one thing. One thing you still lack. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. One thing. There's just one thing you have to do to gain eternal life. Get rid of everything you've got. Every absolute possession you've got here on this earth, go and sell it, give it all away to the poor, and then come follow me. Just give it all away. That's all you've got to do, rich young ruler. Sell everything, give it all away. How's he going to respond to that? Let's have a look. Verse 23. But when he heard these things, the rich young ruler, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. Jesus said here, what Jesus said here metaphorically truly did blow this guy up. It blew him apart. He came to Jesus, I think, feeling quite confident in his goodness, quite confident about who he is in himself. But now he's leaving Jesus feeling absolutely gutted and sad, it tells us there. Now we could respond here by saying, Jesus, what are you doing? 
You're not helping him sort of get closer to you on face value. Why didn't you just lead him through the sinner's prayer? He was asking for eternal life. Why didn't you just do that, Jesus? Jesus, he's exactly the sort of guy you need for your ministry. He is loaded with money. Think of everything he can do for you in your ministry. Jesus, what are you doing? You might think that as you read that, Jesus, why are you going this way? Jesus is the master physician when it comes to the soul of humanity. Jesus can read this guy like we read a book. He knows exactly what is happening here in the heart of this young man as he comes to Jesus. He knows that the rich young ruler's need of one more thing is way more deeper than what the rich young ruler thought it was. It wasn't just one more thing to add onto his list of accessories in life. It was way, way deeper than that. And Jesus could read him like a book. Now, Jesus is not harsh with him at all when he comes and actually says this. It might appear that way. Okay, just go and sell everything you got. Then you've got eternal life. Because if you went to Mark 10 and saw the same story there, you would actually see there that says, Jesus looked at him and loved him and then said that. So Jesus is not being harsh. He's actually loving this guy truly. In fact, Jesus loves him so much, this rich young ruler, that he's prepared to wound him with the truth so that this rich young ruler will actually see what his biggest problem is. It's not one extra accessory in life. It's way, way deeper than that. And the context here is somewhat set around when Jesus is approached here as this good teacher to try and get this idea where Jesus is actually heading. And this is where Jesus responds with what uh, looks like a questioning of his own personal goodness. Because this um, rich young ruler comes up and says, good teacher, and Jesus says, why do you call me good? And that was the question there. Was, was Jesus actually saying he wasn't good? That was the question that came with this passage here. And I think you could take this passage like this. Rich young ruler, you're calling me good? Didn't you know that only God is good? So therefore maybe have a rethink about who you're actually speaking to right now. If you're calling me good and recognising me as good, perhaps you're talking to God. And I think that's probably a good way to take that. Jesus is telling the rich young ruler, just have a rethink about who, if you're calling me good, you're actually talking to God. Now, I know I can read like Jesus, oh, I'm not good, only God is good, but that's, I don't think that's how it is there. God, Jesus is not questioning his goodness. He's actually perhaps trying to tell the rich young ruler, no, no, yes, you've recognised me as good, so just have a rethink about who you are talking to here. So Jesus has perceived that the rich ruler has taken goodness, as he's reading him and thinking about who he is, that the rich young ruler has taken goodness and brought it into a very low human level and not compared it to the perfect goodness of who God is. The rich ruler is thinking on a very low scale of human goodness and how somehow that will please God for gaining eternal life. And then as we see there, Jesus addresses that by asking some of the commandments that are between each other. The second table of commandments, which is dealing with our, call it our horizontal relationships with each other here on earth. And he goes through that and he says, um, you know, lying, stealing, honouring your parents and having faithful relationships. And the rich ruler says, yep, I'm all good. Done all those. No black marks against my name there. It's all good. Jesus knows what the problem here with him is, so he drills deeper. 
he goes deeper. He now aims at the very heart of this young man. He really wants to get to what is the first love or the primary love or the dominant love in the, in the life of this rich young ruler. And the first commandment of the Bible that God gives to mankind is, you shall have no other gods before me. In other words, you shall love me with all your heart, mind, soul and strength first. And this is now where he goes with this rich ruler. As your creator and God, nothing should come, before, uh, come between me and you, says God. So Jesus goes straight to the heart and he says, rich ruler, give all your wealth away. Sell everything you have and then follow me. For the rich ruler, this feels like a knife through his heart. He just feels like he's been ripped open and stabbed. Something has absolutely wounded him when Jesus has said that. Something's been exposed, what's happening inside his heart. You see, for the rich ruler, his first love is money or wealth or prosperity. He can't bear to part with his money. That's where his security and confidence is. He can't imagine life without a six-digit salary. That's where life is for him. For him, money has brought power, control and self-esteem. The rich ruler would have to walk away from all of what he's built his life on in accumulating and gaining wealth and money. This is what he's lived for. This is what keeps him going is his wealth. The rich ruler's first love in his heart is for money. He's living for money. So Jesus says, give it all away. Give it all away. Jesus says this because he loves this guy. He really, really loves this guy. And Jesus knows that anything that we allow to come between us and God will ultimately be a monster to serve. It will be. It will become a tyrant that we will serve and it will demand incredibly painful things of us. Whatever it is between us and God that we allow to come there will become a monster. How many times over the years have you heard reports where we've actually seen adult kids have murdered their elderly parents to gain an early inheritance of the money that's coming to them? There was a classic one back in the States probably 20 or 30 years ago. I think it was Menendez uh, twins or boys. Um, killed their parents to actually get an early inheritance. Money drove them to do that. Become a terrible monster. Or we can use money to gain power and control over a situation. Possibly where corporate executives uh, may exploit their workers by underpaying them just so they can have more money for themselves. This monster called money, the love of money, drives corporate executives to exploit their workers and underpay them so they can have more money in their account. This highlights how this monster works in our lives. Supposedly harmless TV reality shows where people are competing against each other to win a prize. Often that prize is a large cash amount at the end. Isn't it amazing how it draws unkind things out of people in the way they actually deal in their relationships because they're all trying to get that half a million dollar prize or whatever it is at the end. They'll start treating each other like enemies to some extent. 
know, you might be all smiles when they're together, but when they're behind closed doors in their own room, they're all plotting who knows what sort of crazy things to take place. This is the monster that comes where we serve anything between us and God. It will ask us to do all sorts of crazy things, evil things, to satisfy its lusts for more and more and more. It will promise us salvation from a meaningless life, but it will never really satisfy because it can't satisfy. And it doesn't have to be money only. I mean, that's the highlight here that we're seeing with this rich young ruler. It's anything that we have between us and God that we treat as our first love that promises us happiness and fulfilment in life can become this monster. It really, really can to serve. It can be relationships. If we believe the most important thing in life is to be in a relationship at all costs to find happiness and fulfilment, if that's the only way, if that's the primary way to happiness and fulfilment in life, that it's through a relationship. If we think getting married is what life is all about, that will become a monster to serve. It will become a monster to serve. We will either sell ourselves cheap to the first person that comes along in desperation or if no one comes along, we will live incredibly unhappy because we haven't satisfied this monster called relationship that tells me that's the only way to be happy is to be in a relationship. There's any number of things that actually fall into this category. It's anything we, we put between ourselves and God and treat that as ultimate or primary in our lives. And you see, this is the call that Jesus puts here to the rich young ruler. Jesus, who loves this guy, tells him, if you really want to find fulfilment, happiness and true treasure, you need to walk away from all these false gods that you've built up in your life. You need to just give them all up. You need to allow them to be stripped away. And it won't be easy. It really, really won't be easy. These false gods are monsters and they sink their claws into our hearts. They take hold of us and they grip really, really tightly. They tell us, you're walking away from everything you've built your life on. You can't do this. Look at the rich young ruler. He walked away grieved. He walked away sad. This monster had so bound him up that he could not give it away. This primary love for money, first and foremost, was actually strangling his heart. This incredible love for money that he had would not let him go. You see, Jesus will not be an add-on for our lives. It wasn't like here that I can build my life around all this world can offer and then like the rich young ruler, I'll just put Jesus in my back pocket for a bit of insurance for eternal life as well. Jesus won't be an add-on like that. That'll never work, says Jesus. You cannot serve two gods. You cannot serve the God here that's strangling your heart in money and you cannot serve me at the same time. This is where Jesus uses that metaphor here in this passage about a camel going through the eye of a needle for, as a rich person going to heaven. It really is a picture of impossibility, Jesus is showing us. Now, I know some people maybe in some ways have heard, well, there's supposed to be some camel gate in the walls of Jerusalem where they get down the knees, they can sort of crawl in really difficultly. Well, Jesus is not talking about that. He's talking about the needle you have with a thread and trying to put a camel through the eye of that needle. Now, I'm struggling to put a piece of cotton through that needle other than the whole camel. It's a metaphor of it's impossible. You cannot have two gods and think you can get yourself in 
to God's kingdom. There is no room for other gods in heaven because they're all false gods. And what Jesus here is, what he's doing here is right. These are the right demands of the gospel that Jesus is talking about here and that he teaches. And what this rich young ruler hasn't seen, and maybe if he lives a bit longer and, and, and uh, the spirit draws him, he will see it, that God is far more demanding than we can ever imagine. God's not looking for some low-level human goodness here to satisfy him. But at the same time, God is also way more generous than we ever dared to believe as we think about that. The rich ruler thought he was okay. He was good enough for God. But he had really lost sight of the demands of perfection and goodness that God required. What God requires of us in goodness goes way beyond any human level of thinking or understanding. God requires purity in the most uh, possible way, the most pure way. And if we think about all of our best efforts are tainted with selfish desires. In the middle of that, God requires purity at the very core of our being. And this is where our heart is corrupted. The demands here are way more than we could ever have perceived. Look at how the disciples responded here with Jesus after this rich man had made his response and Jesus had spoken. They said there in verse 26, those who heard it, which is the disciples, then who can be saved? Who can meet these demands? Who can meet these demands of perfection? They probably don't fully understand it here, but they are getting it. Nobody is good enough for God. Then they're saying, well, then who can be saved? They're throwing this question out there. Because they're saying, we thought this rich guy was over the line. Richness back then was a sign of blessing. Jesus, if he's not saved, who can be saved? The demands of God are way, way, way beyond what any human being could ever possibly meet. But at the same time, we've also got to see that even though God's right demands are way beyond our imagination, he's also a God who's way more generous than we ever dared to hope. Perhaps the saddest scene in this story is the walking away here of this rich ruler from Jesus. It's terribly sad when I think about it. I picture myself there. He's speaking to God. He's looking for eternal life. And Jesus is dealing with him in a very loving way. And he offers him that by trying to strip away the idols from his heart. And he just walks away from this incredible treasure. This incredible gift that Christ is. It's a really, really sad scene. Jesus has asked him to give away all his earthly treasure. And he said, trade all that in and I'll give you true treasure in heaven. I'll give you treasure that will last eternally. He says that there in verse 22. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, One thing you still lack, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. And here's the trade. And you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. The treasure that Jesus is referring to there is himself. He said, you will have me for eternity. Jesus is saying, give away what you are allowing to come between you and I. Give away these false monsters that are strangling your heart and squeezing the life out of you. Give away these monsters that are always promising everything, but only ever deliver empty dreams that leave you high and dry. Jesus says, give them away and come and find true treasure in heaven. Come and follow me, Jesus says. Who are we following, though, if we think about that in that sense? What is this picture of Jesus that we know with the complete 
view of Scripture that we have. The Bible tells us in Hebrews that we are following Jesus, our faithful high priest, the one who represents us before God and tells of our goodness to God, the goodness that we have received, not of our own, but the goodness that we have received when he took our place at the cross for us and Jesus took our sin and gave us his goodness so that we now can stand right before a living God and a holy God. This is the generous grace that we could never dare to hope for that we would receive from Jesus Christ himself, this perfect goodness. And this is the treasure that we receive when we surrender our lives to Jesus. He gives us himself. He becomes our glorious treasure. Jesus, this incredible gift of grace, who lives the life of goodness that we could never live and meets God's right demands and then gives himself to us. He frees us. He frees us from these monsters of false gods and then assures us of eternal life in the presence of God, worshipping him as an ever-growing joy and delight. And this is a two-way relationship. This is a two-way relationship. Not only do we have joy and delight in God, but he has joy and delight in us. He doesn't do this begrudgingly. He's not a treasure that's only given to us in token form. He's given to us in the very fullest sense of that. If we think about this high priest again, who we're told about in Hebrews, the high priest in the Old Testament had the names of the 12 tribes of Israel engraved in stones on his chest piece. In other words, the 12 tribes of Israel are held close to the heart of God. That's exactly where God puts his people. He treasures them in his heart. He loves them in his heart. And that's precisely where we see Jesus, our high priest. He treasures us. He has scars, as it were, from the cross engraven upon his wrists and his hands as a permanent reminder, not for him, but for us, that he truly loves us. And he was truly willing to die in our place because he so loved us and treasures us. And as I surveyed the scene of this rich young man walking away from Jesus, it caused me incredible sadness that that is what he's walking away from. That is what he's walking away from. This glorious gift that Christ is, who would allow himself to be slain on the cross and to be a... Because Jesus still has those scars today. Jesus still has those scars, not as a reminder for him, but for us and his incredible love for us. Here's what we've got to see, I I believe, out of this um, interaction here with the rich young ruler and and Jesus today. The gospel radically deconstructs our lives. When Jesus comes in with the truth, when the Holy Spirit comes in to apply the truth to our hearts, it radically deconstructs our lives. It strips away all of the false hopes that we've been trying to build our lives on. Jesus strips us bare of anything that we've been trusting in other than himself. It deconstructs us. Jesus calls us to surrender everything we have to his lordship because Jesus lovingly deals with our hearts. And it will be painful. It will be painful because we've built our lives up around all these other things to try and get them to sustain us and keep us. Jesus loves us way too much to to leave our cancers, as it were, of our souls untreated within us. Jesus is not a doctor who puts a band-aid on the outside 
and doesn't treat the cancer on the inside. Jesus comes out of absolute love, pulls us apart and exposes us of all the stuff that we've got built in our lives, in our heart, to deconstruct that and to take that away. But then he gloriously shows us the treasure that he is and he doesn't leave us deconstructed. He doesn't leave us as a pile of bones and mess on the floor and pulling us apart. He then applies the gospel to our hearts to reconstruct our lives, to build our lives again upon the truth of who Christ is and to see him as a superior delight, way more than any of the false gods or the false monsters of this world would try and promise but will never, ever deliver. And that's exactly what we find in this reconstruction process of the gospel as it's applied to our hearts. The rich young ruler walked away from all that. And as far as we can see, he returned back to the monster of, false, uh, of money. Friends, it's my prayer today that the Holy Spirit would apply the gospel deeply to our hearts. That we would be willing to go through those deconstruction processes. And sometimes we're very good at trying to rebuild those structures again and God will come back again by His Spirit and begin to de- deconstruct those buildings we try and erect again in our lives. Because he's trying to reconstruct us on Christ. And that's my prayer today for myself and for all of you. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you today that we can come and uh, gather around you. Lord, we thank you, Lord, today for the story here of the rich young ruler. Lord, we thank you for Jesus who would come in in absolute love and not deal just primarily with the surface level of life. He would dive in really deep and he would expose the falseness of our hearts, the deceptions of our hearts, the deceptions of this world that we are trying to build our lives on, trying to find purpose and fulfilment and meaning and happiness out of, as it were, mud pools. Where Jesus would beckon us to come and to drink from the living eternal well of eternal life that comes from Christ alone. Holy Spirit, we pray today you would continue this really painful work in our lives of deconstructing these false hopes that we're building upon. Help us to see that this work is done in love. And help us to build on the gospel as we see this reconstruction work, that you rebuild our lives on the glory and the wonder of who Jesus Christ is. Lord, this is a miracle. This is a miracle. And I pray that we would take hold of that miracle and we would live in that miracle by applying ourselves to your word every day. Father, we ask that. We pray that now in Jesus' name. Amen. Just before um, the music team come back to uh, lead us, any questions or thoughts um, from the talk? All good. Um, for those who would love to catch up with some prayer or after the service, I'd be uh, happy to catch up and uh, spend some time praying with you and um, talk with you then. Okay, thanks guys.